0: Welcome everybody to this Edge of Mind podcast, also part of our ongoing Preparing to Die series where I'm joined with the author and end-of-life caregiver, Sierra Campbell. We explore the many aspects of spiritual and practical preparation for the end of life. She talks about her own experience as a cancer survivor and how she got involved in this work before transitioning into the importance of active listening, saging instead of aging, and the wisdom of waking down at the end of life. What's the profile of those who tend to transition gracefully versus those who struggle? How does one work with the death of a child? And what are the best things to say and not to say to someone who is dying and to family members? How open and honest should you really be? Sierra talks about the importance of using small deaths during life to help with a big one and that most people really aren't afraid of death as much as they are of suffering. The conversation turns to medical aid in dying or MAID how to understand the anger and fear that often arises around death and the place of plant medicine or psychedelics for helping people to die and also for processing grief. Sierra then talks about how the bardo teachings of Tibetan Buddhism have informed and transformed her own relationship to death and her ability to help others. She shares her most effective meditations like metta, the practice of tara, the generation of merit, and breathwork in preparing for the end of life. It's important not to fix and try to fix things at the end of life, but to support the journey. See for yourself why Sierra is such a coveted speaker on some of the most challenging situations and difficult decisions anyone ever has to face. Hey, welcome everybody to this podcast. Andrew Palachuk here. Um, I'm really, really delighted to introduce a dear friend of mine, Sierra Campbell, to talk about a topic that is so dear um, to my heart, which is end of life. Um, death and dying, and topics that I think are of extreme importance in this day and age. So as usual, I will introduce her with a formal biography, and then we're just going to jump into, I think, some really interesting topics. So Sierra Campbell is the author of Dying Awake and the Hospice Books. She has served bedside as a death doula and elder care manager for over 25 years. Following college, she founded a home care agency, devoting more than a decade to support over 100 elders in their final years. Sierra's experiences into the critical conversations on aging, preparing for death and dying inspired her to advocate for early preparation. Sierra began studying yoga, meditation, and Tibetan Buddhism in 1998. She's a cancer survivor with a personal journey, enriching her understanding of the challenges faced by patients and families. Her work fosters open discussions and provides straightforward education in navigating, on navigating life's final stages bringing families and communities closer together. What a wonderful mobile aspiration and what a rich biography. So, Sierra, my dear friend, so nice to see you again. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to to talk um, with me to talk to our community.
1: It's wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's an honor.
0: Yeah, it's really a total delight. So if you don't mind, why don't we start with a little bit of background information? How did you get into this stuff? It's not everybody who devotes their lives to these kind of challenging topics. So can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to work in this area? Well, to me,
1: it never felt challenging because uh, it was very normalized in my family, with my grandmother, especially my maternal grandmother. And I think normalizing aging as much as death and bringing elders into more into our lives, even into our homes, um, to age and care for them. That's something that my grandmother just um, imparted, and so for me, I was, in some ways, devastated to have a great grandmother go from being vibrant and healthy to suffering from dementia, oh. and she became, um, well, she she found she came to a place of needing a lot of care, twenty four seven care, and so as a six year old watching her go from uh, vibrant and healthy to her mind uh, escaping her and her going into a home and she stayed for 8 years and, I,
0: yeah.
1: and so i feel like i've been on a journey of you know working in a nursing home at 16 and kind of understanding what are we how are we caring for our elders you know and how effective is it um to put like a dementia patient in a home like this, you know. Um, so our luckily I found Tibetan Buddhism so I could make sense of everything. And uh, at about 18 years old, and I was able to have a Sangha, a real community to support me. And I think that's everything when you get into this work, you know.
0: Yeah, it's really a big deal. And I want to get back to to the influence of Tibetan Buddhism on your life, but it's really interesting to me. I'm not sure you're aware of it, but Ernest Becker's um Pulitzer Prize winning masterpiece, The Denial of Death, celebrates its 50th anniversary this year, which is amazing. And have we really progressed a whole lot, right, in terms of the way we relate to the end of life, the way we deny death. And so you've probably heard this term, which I actually quite um, like, saging, um, that if we perhaps approach end of life, and this is what I want to hear your impressions on, and we tend to look at old age sickness and death as a kind of defeat, um, because everything is about up, growing up, waking up, growing up, but, but how about the wisdom of waking down, growing down, what what nature is inviting, and then actually demanding at the end of life. So I'm curious if that resonates with your own experience around this, the the, the kind of surrender the acquiescence to this natural graceful transition that if in fact, we can do it, in that way, it turns into a graceful exit. Yes, I
1: love this saying, uh, that death is a miracle. And when we approach it this way, um, and we have uh, some structure in a practice, and the practices of dying before we die, uh, that's really the groundwork, you know, is um, establishing that practice so that we actually know, okay, this is that point where my mind, um, the edge, you know, and, and, and finding your teachers beyond that edge.
0: And how really, really trusting in a, a kind of alchemical tantric um, narrative, transforming what is arguably the greatest obstacle in life, right—the end of it—into almost you know literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, what what a what a dramatic shift that is from resisting and screaming, as Dylan Thomas says, right? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Well, instead of raging, we can relax, right? We can open and and really accept the miracle of wonder. What's really happening?
1: Yeah, I find the more time in nature. To study those cycles of death and rebirth brings us much closer to that ease and the serenity of the surrender. And uh, it's important in our communities with elders that we keep bringing nature. We need to bring them to nature, you know, and and really make an effort to do that or bring nature to them.
0: Yeah. And then I keep... And discovering that they're by the natural process, right? That this is if we simply just get out of the way and let nature run its natural course, it's really one of the easiest things we can do, right? But Mm -hmm. but for human doings, not human beings. Mm -hmm. that's Mm
1: -hmm. One thing in my work that I've always found, it's unexpected. Um, It's often that the family is keeping the elder. And, you know, it is such a tantric and energetic dance. Um, You know, as a death doula, embracing that process, many death doulas will come into the work and they um, feel they're only really there to support the dying. And it's as much or more supporting the family and having those open conversations, not just about Tibetan Buddhism, because it's been my path, but really about uh, their openness, what they're experiencing. uh, And in many ways, protecting the dying. From those attachments and uh, sometimes the zealousness to make decisions for the person who's dying versus with them or on their behalf in a way that supports their wishes.
0: So this is such a re- super important and rich topic because really the, the the family does become just like when you enter the world holding environments as you know are so critically important. If you have the proper holding environment, maturation and growth takes place naturally. I think the same principles coming into mm-hmm. the life apply to going out of life. And so the holding environment really does fall um, to the caregivers of the immediate family. So can you run with us a little bit, um, Sarah, talk to us a little bit more about uh, the specificities of what you would share with a family. I mean, how idiosyncratic is it? Is it customized for each setting or are there some general ground rules that you can perhaps share with us around that?
1: Yeah, absolute uh, general ground rules, you know, but everyone's, death experience is completely unique the more that we speak about it with our loved ones even at this age you know if you're 30 40 50 60 any age um just having the discussions of what does a good death look like what are your wishes and values Uh, the a very often challenging conversation, especially with elders, is getting into at what level of comfortability within your body if you had cognitive decline or a terminal diagnosis. Uh, What is that point where the suffering would be too great and you would want to let go? Mm -hmm. You know, really listening to someone and, and getting into that holding space where you can allow yourself to actually go there and think, if this were, if this happened to me, how would I approach this? And really actively listen to your loved one, or do this work within your sangha, maybe not your family members. I highly recommend that, actually, to have these conversations more with your friends and your community. Make some decisions, maybe it's around your long-term care or your housing, and these decisions then come to your family. The, the, you're the people you're asking or inviting to implement the, these these practices or these values um but these conversations are are critical and they're and they're not just about cremation or burial you know these are the deeper conversations of um like we've talked before about a spiritual will
0: yeah and so is there i know it's difficult to make tart blanche kind of generalizations but in your work what would be a, the general profile, two things, of of um, a family network that would be like really conducive to, um, and I guess what we call a good death is, is somewhat idiosyncratic, but I'm sure some general guidelines approach. But what would be the general kind of profile of, of a healthy holding environment or family um, to initiate or allow, I should say, a natural um, graceful exit? And then also for the dying person themselves, because I suspect you're working as much with the person who's making the transition is those that are holding it. So can you talk to us a little bit about what constitutes or comprises characteristics of a of natural graceful exit versus one that maybe not yes. be some.
1: Yes, so the first conversation and really the most important is with the person who's dying, you know, really establishing a trusting bond and listening to them uh, independent, maybe even on their own away from their family members. Uh, and understanding their landscape. you know, if they're a terminal patient facing um, treatments or no treatments, um, palliative care versus moving more into hospice. you know So the, the ground rules are listening to uh, what is their their options and their path ahead. And listening without um, any judgment and without any bias. You know, so um, just because you might choose something means nothing in their process. You know, and that means if you're helping a conversation along with a family member or professionally. So the ground rules are um, what what do you value most? If you can put yourself in the position, what um, if you're working with terminal patients, so what does the room feel like? What the? out are the items that you'd like in in the room for the last months or weeks of life? Uh, what is the music? Um, what are the specifics? Maybe there are certain uh, pieces of art and pictures that you want or don't want. And then an ever uh, dramatic kind of ground rule is to actually come up with a list of who you would like to invite in and who you would not. And this is where if you're supporting someone, you would be surprised at how many times um, a dying person, an, an elder or terminally ill will have a list. And the person who's not on the list that they don't want to see would really like to see them. And so as their loved one or their, you know, their death doula holding the gate is also very important, you know, and uh, really letting them have choice and reminding them that this is a a miracle and you get to choose this experience along the way. That's conducive to help you in your mind and in your body free of pain. And a big part of conversations I have are about options, Mm. options for terminally ill, whether it's medical assistance, Uh, in death or voluntary stopping eating and drinking and and that practice uh, tibetan buddhist practices are so helpful with the voluntary stopping of eating and drinking you know in the dying process and just really embracing the suffering connecting and you know the practice of tonglen incredibly Mm -hmm. helpful in the dying process and, and being with dying
0: yeah, so for the very few people who may not know with Tonglen, it's a really powerful um, practice of sending and taking, where you bring in the suffering of others, send out radiant, beaming, healing, curing light to others. And, and I found, personally, as you have, that it's, it's such a street-level, greedy practice that uh, when it comes mm-hmm. to really challenging situations, it's definitely one of my go-to practices. But how early, at what age do you suggest, recommend Is there a lower age limit for this type of exploration and contemplation? I mean, what's the youngest set of um, family members or people that you've worked with?
1: Oh, wow. I've worked with very young family members. Um, In planning, uh, children of elders that are in their teens, um, you know, teenagers who have parents with chronic terminal illness, understanding palliative care. You know, palliative care is ongoing support that can really extend life versus hospice care. But in that process, you know, with families I've worked with, with parents in palliative care, there's um, empathy and emotional intelligence that I found in the family work that teenagers um, often parents will hide that they're not feeling well and not have open conversations. And so a teenager can often feel like it's their fault when they don't know what's going on. And those conversations are incredibly healing. When a parent can say, this is my health challenge, um, it's hereditary or not, and be able to explain um, if it's something that their children are at risk you know, in having. And then a big conversation is, what will this palliative care grow into over the years? You know, like especially with multiple sclerosis, ALS, you know, and dementia. So these kinds, these conversations uh, are incredibly practical, and all of our spiritual practices, of course, can help, kind of fuel them. But
0: it's, it's so along these lines, Sierra, how much of your work is involved, or does involve group process? I mean, being with a family and the dying member. Um, obviously, you're working with a DIME member separately, and it seems like you're working sometimes with it with a family member separately. But how how about bringing everybody together? Is that a core aspect of what you do, and how important is that?
1: This is incredibly important for every everyone in hospice. We work in teams, and so when you are even remotely interested in getting involved in an end of life in your community, look up and a voluntary hospice program. And the first um, experience, you're welcomed into a sangha of sorts, um, a group of people of many different denominations and spiritual backgrounds that come together literally to learn about teamwork. And in hospice, you work with doctors, chaplains, uh, the patients, of course, their family members, their therapists, and it's an incredible uh, invitation into your community. You meet amazing people of all all walks of life, and I've often found in hospice trainings there's something called the threshold choir. Oh yeah. So you'll 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 be in this training learning about practical elements, medical, non medical, how to take notes as a team, and half the group or more is there to sing bedside. Uh, at the you know in the instead of sitting vigil they are showing up and and singing and so that community experience has been one of the most enriching in my life I've volunteered in hospice in New York City Steamboat Springs Colorado Los Angeles San Francisco and um, you meet some incredible people musicians along the way
0: yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, the, what do they call it? Music fanatology. I mean, you know, the, the the capacity to bring this kind of sonic environment, which, um, I mean, as a musician, I can totally relate to that, right? I mean, it's part of my um, so-called spiritual advanced directive, I have, I want to hear the, mm-hmm. the second movement of the Beethoven Fifth Piano Concerto, for example, right? I mean, something that's just going to completely dissolve me <laughs> into this open yes. space. Yes.
1: <laughs> so you have this well thought out. Brilliant.
0: Yeah. And so, so how specific you were, you're intimating earlier items you want, music, art. You, you seem to be implying quite a degree of specificity that people can actually envision. Is this an exercise that you do with them? Like imagine, I mean, I do this, I'm I'm on my deathbed. I'm visualizing if I may be so fortunate to have my version of an ideal death. And this is what creates the kind of contents of my Dharma will, so do you work with these very specifics when you're working with people and and family members as well? Absolutely.
1: Yes. At Nurture we have a course Five Conversations and it walks it walks people through every element from the practical to the spiritual and developing a long-term or a short-term plan. And I say long-term or short-term because some people come into Five Conversations with a terminal diagnosis. And so they're far more focused on the last wishes and values. And just like you said, visualizing, uh, really starting to take, instead of 30 minutes for their practice, eight hours a day. And really start to prepare uh, in a very, very mindful and embodied way. Something unexpected is that we actually have to come home to our body to fully surrender and die. And so it is a very physical experience, while it's also transcendent.
0: Absolutely. And so one thing I wanted to to send your direction is this really incredibly challenging arena of of the death of a child. Um, Do you have experience working with that kind of loss with people? Um, And if if so, what sort of suggestions and, and recommendations? Because I, I mean, I, I know very dear, intimate friends who who've lost children. Um, arguably, one of the greatest mm-hmm. hits that a person can experience in one's life. So, can you share a couple um, words of advice around around that extraordinarily challenging situation?
1: Well, first, I'll approach it by how to communicate with a friend that's going through that. You know, something uh, that's very helpful for me is I put these things in my calendar. You know, when, you know, if it's the death of a, a friend's child, to me, that becomes more important or as important as their birthday, you know? So I reach out around that time, maybe not on the day of or before. And if it feels comfortable, I recommend being very direct. How are you coping? Even if it's been 10 years ago, you know, how are you coping? Uh, here, if you need to talk, let's take a, a walk sometime. Um so first, you know, the approach of just how to be present without um, intervening too much, you know, or feeling like a burden. Keeping that invitation open, and of course, grief is not on a timeline. No. It's not a linear experience. And then when it's, um, when I worked in very early in my work, and you know, when I, in my early twenties, I worked with children who were six to nine years old with leukemia. And I found their approach to life. um, They were so present and they hadn't had a lot of time here to be too attached. Now, this isn't true for all, but for for most. And they were so impacted by how their family reacted to losing them, to their loss of life and to how their family uh, really viewed death and end of life and so i had many conversations where i'd have one to one talks with these children that um you know we were, were working with proton therapy they were working with very early before proton therapy found its magic and where it's really effective um and it it wasn't a therapy that worked for these kids and so i went on a six week journey with dozens of them and their family and uh, in bloomington indiana and i found one to one there was almost this joy or excitement of the next adventure you know and they there was um for many of them their body was so tired they just felt that that kind of sense of they had unplugged but they were so plugged into to something much greater and so when they every day would make art they would paint their dreams they were really active in their dreams And having their parents talk with them every morning about their dreams, bridge their day and their healing journeys together. Um, But that reminding the parents that uh, not to shelter or protect the child from their emotions, but instead to let them know that um, they're sad because they're continuing to live, but also really having faith. Or parents having faith that they will meet again, that we are all in one in this creation and this cycle. And the more that uh, you parents can share meditation and those quiet moments in the morning, especially, um, they're very powerful, subtle and
0: powerful. So Sierra, is it is it too facile or is it is it reasonable to say in your experience that the younger they are, the easier it is for the on the child side because of like what you're talking about, less attachments, less investments in the portfolio of their memories and whatnot. Is, is that a fair assessment that the younger they are, the easier it is?
1: I have found that. Absolutely. And it's again that it's about their internal family system, the yeah. dynamics in their family. Uh that plays a, a, a very big role. Um, but uh, overall, yes. And and I'd say there is more of uh, embracing the unknown. You know, you see children wake up two to four years old and they're just dancing and singing and they wake up. And I often wonder, uh, when did we lose that? You know, it's a good reminder to to stay close to small children and uh, watch how they wake up innocently and want to dance and sing into the day. And and learn as much as we can from that you know, and how we come into our day and in our practice
0: yeah i mean I, I don't want to get too like cognitive or even theoretical around this but to me what, what comes to mind is that prior to around age seven right there there isn't a tremendous reified self-sense you know there isn't this degree of self-consciousness that we know and so to me it would make sense that the the correlative consequence of that would be a more natural ease and acceptance and grace of whatever happens because you haven't imputed your Versions and visions onto a world. You're simply accepting things as they arise more freely. The reason I mention this is because this is also somewhat connected to meditator principles. That these same we can learn a great deal from children. They have this this wonderful childlike way of of uh, looking at the world that can be a beginner's mind. It can be of a great um, teaching to a so-called mature elders. Right. So how often yes. have the children taught you? I mean, what what have you learned from these children that that stays with you? That is like, wow, there's some real wisdom in this.
1: Well, I've learned in those moments where I've wanted to say to someone, uh, you should, yeah. to should on, on you know, what I think, uh, yeah, I yeah. think I might, I might know what is better because I have a different lens or perspective or vantage point. None of that matters. You know, it, uh, I'd say t- children, especially children facing a terminal diagnosis, are the ultimate uh, in bringing your full presence And really listening. And uh, there are really no moments of awkward silence Mm -hmm. with children like there are with adults. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that how to be sensitive around language, Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: especially the language of cheerleading and pushing someone to survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. And there's a delicate balance of that. You know, but um, I learned with children to listen more and be in that the acceptance and the flow of of what's happening mm-hmm. and not from a place of the mind is racing, but that what's most important and what's happening now,
0: yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. And so how about how about the parents? I mean, what what can you say or do you say? is it is it all? again, highly customized, idiosyncratic to the situation, or or similarly, are there some, I think you get the spirit, some generic yeah. kind of yes. guidelines around that.
1: I think the biggest thing is empathy. Empathy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's, I think, a, a good entry point is, um, I can't imagine what you're going through, yeah. and I'm not going to ask you how I can be helpful yeah this is a big one right you come to a parent who's already really overwhelmed and you say anything you need i'm here reach out to me so what i recommend is going one step ahead and really looking at what might they need you know maybe it's to send them a meal maybe it's to send them a book um but putting any more even mental pressure Mm. can be very challenging um And really coming from that place of beginner's mind yourself. Uh, And this is, again, where Tonglen, I love how complicated some of the Buddhist practices can become. And then I love just that basic simplicity, that practice of Tonglen. And if you don't know what to say, that's a great practice where you just sit and really put yourself in their place.
0: Yeah,
1: And bring in energetically through your breath. What they might be feeling the heaviness in their in their heart and find a way to just be with their emotions and be maybe in that un- uncomfortable silence
0: you know the one thing I'm curious how this lands with you in my experience of, of working and really has been a gift um, with end-of-life situations it's it's the invitation and really that it's it's the command of truth um and so along these lines um coming up to someone like that and saying, you know, I, I don't even know what to say. Um, I mean, how? Yes, that's perfect. Know, I mean, at that point, it's just be be, you know, be transparent and, and say, uh, I, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to say. And then, and basically let that spaciousness then create an opportunity for them to, to step into your minefield, so to speak.
1: Exactly. And that is a wonderful way to start. I don't even know what to say. And I am here for you. And I'm here for you at two in the morning. You know, you, you tell them how and when you're there. Um, and sometimes you just start that way. I don't know what to say. I'll let you start. And um, I'm here to listen. And that that energy of um, trying to fix, trying to uh, yeah. kind of create peace, you know, that that all goes out the window. You know, even in moments for others that look like chaos, um, there are ways you could we can all support. But it's not our role to fix; yeah. it's our role to really hold the space. Um, maybe even pr- be the the gatekeeper, and to just ha- and help bring peace and harmony.
0: You know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of something uh, the Parmiche said that's it's just been one of the amazing teachings from him is a. Uh, there is no way out. You know, the magic is to discover that that there's a way in. And so to me, this has been a really wonderful guide around working with the end of life, because it's inevitable. We may attempt to live in denial of it, but it is a harsh, harsh, noble truth. And to whatever extent we can um, understand these fundamental principles within ourselves and then convey them, even with our own presence, and and basically show people, this is what's happening, there is no way out, you're dying, this child was dying, whatever, in, in the most um, sensitive language you can come up with and pe- perhaps the invitation then is there's a way in let's let's work to relate to what's happening let's let's accept mm-hmm. without indulging because that's the other extreme right without indulging mm-hmm. it so we, we dance between the kind of middle way between denying repressing and indulging um, so to mm-hmm. me i think the kind of sweet spot in there and, and that's the, the fantastic dance of the death that really is dictated largely by, I often say that it is a dance and this is where the dying person leads this dance. You know, they will be the ones, if you're open to it, they will actually um, convey a tremendous amount of information. So you're not relentlessly fixing and shooting on each other, right? It should. Mm -hmm. This is a powerful thing for us as students of Tibetan Buddhism, because as you know, the Tibetan Bardo teachings are extraordinarily voluminous and incredibly articulate. And I find sometimes as noble as that map is, it's never the territory, and the map can backfire because, wait wait a second, it, stage three isn't supposed to happen before stage one, right? And so you have all this preparation, and then it's like, then that backfires. So we can return to this a little bit later when I ask you a little bit more about how Tibetan Buddhism has affected you. But to me, I think something along these principles has really been helpful for me. I'm curious how that lands with you as well.
1: Uh, well which part specifically
0: <laughs> yeah um yeah just you know the 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 invitation to find your own way in the invitation to establish yeah. a more spacious um so-called helpful relationship to the neg- to the non-negotiable that this is what's happening maybe we can start with mm-hmm. that
1: yeah i think one way in that i like to ask people and when they don't wanna go right to the conversation of death, if they're facing the end, is tell me about some of the smaller deaths in your life. The moments in your life where you really felt like you shed all the skin and had a complete renewal. And what what got you through? And that way in um, for a lot of people is feeling. It's feeling. And for others, it's a deepening in the practice. And I have met many, especially parents who have lost children, who find that the practice that they've had for many, many years, um, they have to take a break from certain intensities. You know, and that um, there's a, a natural kind of evolution even of our practice as these things come up in our life and how how we face grief right how we face uh, the emotions and the feelings that come up with loss and you know something that comes up for me that um i feel is a a conversation piece we leave out is to remind people that they will be very angry with loss they're you know especially if it's very close to them um, and that could even be with their own capacities With aging, you know there can be these very intense feelings, and so that can be really the way in. That's one way that I tend to work with families, uh, so that they know it's it will happen, and they'll know at some point they will completely deny the process. You know, so this is also kind of a, a general, very helpful guidepost for people to remind them you're going to go through complete denial of this. You might, you're going to get really angry, Um, you know, just feel into those things and then let's develop a way that you're going to actually work through them, that mm-hmm. they become fuel for you to deepen this practice of acceptance um, and really moving into all the stages of the Bardo's, you know, and there's nothing like in, engaging and active uh, meditations, you know, really receiving guided meditations through the bardos.
0: You know, um,
1: do you have any of those, Andrew?
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, for sure.
1: That's what I thought. I thought you had many of those. And, you know, just to having that practice and sharing that with someone in your life uh, who, you know, is going through grief or really facing and embracing the end giving them those practices, you know, sending them one of Andrew's guided meditations. Uh, it's not a, it's, it's, you know, it's a gentle way of supporting them. And then you have something to have a conversation with them about.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so rich. A couple of things came to mind. One is, as is, is you, I'm sure are well aware of, the, the wonderful kind of threefold um, uh, process that the Buddhists talk about of understanding, experience and realization. And what you're precisely talking about here is um, problems often arise on so many dimensions of the living path or the dying path is when we have experiences and we don't understand. And so if you don't have that underpin, literally stand under, if you don't have the infrastructure of the understanding, the experience itself, when which is related to um, properly is never problematic. In fact, the experience becomes opportunistic, if it is related properly. So what you're saying is exactly in resonance with that, that you can pave your way with words but also being a little bit co- careful not to impose this is the way it will happen these are possible um expectations so to speak and, and then we understand when the experience arises then you can again the end notion of holding environment now you have a, a cognitive holding environment an, an affective holding environment that allows you to relate yes. to the experience in a completely bigger and usually a more open and graceful way right
1: yes and something I, I know that you understand very well is that most people are not afraid to die. They're afraid to suffer. Yeah. And it's our relationship with how we yeah. accept suffering. And then for people who've meditated and really spent decades in deep philosophical studies, deep practice, I find um, unless there's embodiment, you know, a somatic relationship, with practice, sometimes that they're um, when the body suffers, you know the the body can for many of us become a vehicle to keep the mind strong. Exercise, being physical, uh, when we lose our capacity, you know, uh, there's there's that relationship changes of active body, clear mind, you know, and so really getting deeper with what does that feel like to have a clear mind and to deal with suffering of the body. Um, and again, Tonglin, you asked earlier, having these conversations, we want to have these conversations early. When I first uh, found the Sangha at 18, I heard people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, everyone made a point with the younger students there to say, oh my God, if I would have found this at this age, you know, my biggest wish in life my regret is that i didn't find a dharma practice and take it seriously younger and i loved how so many people made a point of saying that and now even as i'm now their age looking back i still feel like oh i i could have taken more of the um of the juice from life or from from the from the dharma over the last 25 years or more than 25, because it's a lifelong practice. You now and once you kind of, the gate opens, there's so many pathways to deepen in Tibetan Buddhism.
0: Again, it's so incredibly rich. And one thing that comes to mind here, um, Sierra, is, this, is that, you know, the reason what you said was just so fantastic, I mean, quote unquote, that we're not so much afraid of dying, we're afraid of, of the suffering associated with it. And so uh, I'm curious how, how much you work with the following. To me, it's like, one of the most profound ways to die before we die is is to um, identity transfer. I mean, we suffer in direct proportion to how solidly and exclusively we, we identify with form. I mean, that's to me, that's what ego is exclusive identification with form. And so, if we put all our investment in that portfolio, which is always going to crash, well, you've guaranteed your misery. So, to me, the, the dying before you die narrative is really largely about transferring accounts, so to speak, right? From the portfolio of reified form slash body into our I, I, pardon the play on words our ira a true immortality retirement account where we transfer our, our our assets into the dimension of our experience that is in fact immortal that doesn't die so with that in mind how do you work because i i, I dance play work with this especially when i'm relating to um so-called non-practitioners ordinary folks when they're dying. Because I feel like, oh my gosh, I had, there's so much we could say. I mean, like the Buddhist tradition has so much to offer here. If only you could do this. So, how do you bring the wealth of your experience and understanding in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition to bear in, in helping people die before they die and in, in making this transition in their identity structure? I mean, do you do you do you simply allow the person to in, create the opportunity for where this might be appropriate? Or do you more overtly create intimations and invitations to say, hey, have you thought about this in order to coax Mm -hmm. them into this greater dimensionality of their being?
1: A little bit of both. And I love Sogyal Rinpoche's book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, because it's so open with visualizations that instead of Buddha, use Christ. Instead of, you know, or in addition to, uh, and it gives this freedom in the practice that I haven't seen in a lot of other texts, Um, but that format is so effective when supporting a friend or uh, professionally through the process, you know, where it's just it's listening and listening to their faith and what will really guide them through. And I find a strength in the practice. The, the commitment of the practices you know very well in Tibetan Buddhism and that I think the discipline is what we can impart and it, that comes through energetically it comes through um just naturally uh, you know when when you're really in conversation with someone who's in need of of um, receiving a new practice or deepening where they are and their acceptance of of Aging or death
0: really I think one of the, the great gifts I see in your work that I, I attempt to do in my own in this area is this kind of a cultural translation you know that we have this extraordinary wellspring of information wisdom that's been articulated in the Tibetan Buddhist environment but because it's so uh, almost pre-cultural it's it's almost in a certain sense almost pre-human these truths are so foundational that I think one of the invitations slash challenges for people like us is to, is to make effective cult- cultural translations, whether it's you know, making these mm-hmm. two, um, different reference points respective of, of religious traditions and whatnot that people um, are working with, but that sort of thing. So so this is a, a topic that we've kind of been circumambulating. Maybe let's throw a dart right at this. How has Tibetan Buddhism and, and the Bardo teachings informed and transformed your uh, relationship to your own um understanding of death and then in particular how how is it informed and transformed the way you work with people as they're making these transitions
1: so i remember very vividly my first experience in agopa and with a group a small group of tibetan um, monks who were lighting candles for people who'd passed and they had you know told the sangha meditation on the weekend that uh, you know, there was someone in the Sangha who was sick, and they were lighting a candle. And the, the years later, I had someone I'd worked with, a woman I'd worked with for two, three years in caregiving, who was really struggling to pass. And her family was holding on, and, and the, the family dynamic was quite toxic at the end. And I called Jamyang. Young. Whom I'd met at the, the monastery. And I said, Well, I really need to talk about this. Or I had been with her for many hours and she'd been kind of actively dying and in hospice. And just coming into the monastery and like, Ah, oh, I could take a deeper breath. And I felt like what I was carrying of hers started to just lift off my shoulders. But Jam Young took me to the altar and explained the 49 days in the bardo. And he explained who in the sangha was sick and what these candles were for. And that when she passed, we would have 49 days of practice. And that set me on really my path. of um, And he said to me very, very concisely, your work is physical. It's going, It's it's in the homes and it's with the people. We don't need to actually be there in person to help them. In their transition. And I started really feeling that, it was more of a feeling sense of when I would visit the elders again after practicing with the monks and learning more about the bardos, there was an ease, a greater ease that I feel like just comes through presence. But learning about the bardos and then being able to just have an open dialogue with the family, because I didn't need to... Let's say go to a Christian family losing their grandmother and talk about the six bardo's and what what their elder might be experiencing in their consciousness. Instead, I would say you know pay attention to your dreams um, and especially leading up to, and pray, send good well wishes, visualize your loved one uh, in a beautiful, healthy state, and really using the power of prayer, the power of um, visualization and what they were open to and that would bridge really beautiful conversations but the monks really um in every way enlightened me to this process and opened a a doorway to traditions that i i don't know how long it would have taken me in life you know to to find these i can't i still have a hard time i just i'm so grateful that the monks found their way to middle America. Uh, mostly because of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's brother had come to Indiana University in the 70s, and a nice culture and a community of uh, Buddhist practices have taken root there. And so, and as you know,
0: oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: You know how important a sangha is. Uh, You know, and and there's lots of dynamics, the personal dynamics of Sangha, um, being in community. But I have now lifelong friends, Dharma practitioners that I met at 18, and now uh, they're in their 60s, now they're in their 80s. And so it's we've been a a group of about 20, 25, and it expands and expands with lots of visiting, uh, visiting teachers, visiting students from Mongolia.
0: In India, so within the, within the extraordinary array of skillful means that the Bardo teachings and Tibetan Buddhism in general has to offer, two questions: What have you found the most effective transformative in your own experience? What what do you find yourself taking refuge in? What practice do you want to hold in your hand as you're walking in the Bardo yourself? And then, secondly, um, outside of well, actually, you hadn't mentioned this in terms of sharing Tongling with, with people that you're working with. Um, what practices do you find yourself perhaps either suggesting or intimating it for people who might be receptive, either family members or those who are actually making the transition themselves? So two questions on that.
1: Well, let's go with um First, the practice. Um, there are so many practices, but I, I really feel like loving kindness. Uh, really connecting with uh, Tara the Tara practice is a, a beautiful way when you're you know just needing to call in the the great mother and take refuge and the mother of us all and it takes a lot of pressure and it can take a lot of um, that weight that that we carry as you go in and you go deeper into this work um, that would be and and generating merit, generating merit, and really understanding what that means. And I I feel I learn the most from this one, generating merit. Because you said something earlier that made me think of merit and how, you know, this is um, what we accumulate in our practice and how we show up in the in the worlds and our reactions with everyone in our life, and sitting even if it's just for one minute and um, one way of generating merit is to think about the teachers that have inspired you the most and really flood your your field and connect Um, in tibetan buddhism like guru yoga that's that's a practice i have i've really appreciated and then with the bardos where i find refuge and solace is dissolving the elements in the physical body, you know, and really dissolving all the senses into a very peaceful place, you know, and, and that's so unique for everyone. And um, there's nothing like taking refuge in the relationship with your teacher, you know, in that bond and trust and to really choose your teacher wisely, um, the a lot of teachers I've worked with, one in particular, I mentioned Jam Young. He always said, Know your teacher for seven years. Mm-hmm. Don't hesitate to be in the community and watch how they, how and who they are in the community. There's no rush. You know, there's uh, the teachings are there. You can start reading and really develop your practice, but then having that, you know, ability to take refuge um, in your Rinpoche and your teacher there's nothing like that for me I mean I feel so blessed with having just that you know that feeling that you can it's it's a relationship that for me it generates more and more compassion just thinking of of my teacher you know
0: it's fantastic and I, I do want to point out to our listeners that Tara is who we're looking at on uh, the upper right side of your shoulder, right? So obviously she's been a wonderful aid to you. So uh, before we get to the second question, say a little bit more about the dissolving of the elements, because you do this as, through a form of contemplation. that's a little bit opaque to me in terms of how do you actually work with the visualization or feeling the dissolution of the elements. Dissolution
1: the of the elements. So in um, in yoga, it's really withdrawing the senses. And within Tibetan Buddhism, I I think of this as uh, letting the earth, the water elements, really watching my own body dissolve and the last sense to be hearing. And so it's um, a practice death, basically, but it's practicing by going, going inward, inward, inward. And it's, again, taking refuge. And it's it's letting. I start with the vis, the visualization of all of the um, the wind leaving mm-hmm. my body. The wind then turns into dryness mm-hmm. with with water, and it's uh, even taking myself to that place of, you know, this is pretty extreme. But I have I've faced a, a diagnosis with cancer and have at a very young age, from thirteen to twenty one. Mm-hmm. And so I found, I've continued to find it helpful to really think about my body decaying and decomposing because it's a natural part of this life. You know, we're not here to solve aging. We're here to uh, live and really be free of suffering and help free suffering. And this idea of anti-aging or resolving aging is uh, something from society that I feel it's good to have a practice. So this one for me has been, has been helpful. And also when I come out of these practices, um, I'd say the feeling is a lot like yoga nidra, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, coming, coming out of that, I feel renewed. There's a a lightness and something that I've let go of internally attachments that they can often be physical. And just by that visualization of the wind leaving my body, drying up, and all the senses withdrawing in my body basically becoming soil. You know, to think of that decomposed bag of bones, creating rich nurturing soil for plants. So that's um, and I'm more of a visual person. So uh, I love guided meditations through the Bardo's, Mm -hmm. you know. Um Pema Chodron has some. You have wonderful ones. I think uh, Being with Dying, Roshi Joan Halifax. Yeah,
0: she's got some really good ones. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, uh, in the Sanskrit, they have this beautiful phrase, Panchashvamgata, uh, which is uh, allegedly, and I don't really know, I just read this. It's considered somewhat impolite to say someone has died. This particular phrase literally means, translates, returned to fiveness. So death, no. death is the return to the primordial mother, the lender. And so you're returning the elements back to their rightful source. And, and if we see it in that regard, that this is basically just returning and, and entering this cosmic recycling process, then of course it's a, you know, the extraordinary power of right view. I mean, that to me is what brings about all the fear and death is this this somewhat unfortunate black curtain that we create, that we impute and therefore the fear is directly proportional to how dark that is. And so you, the work that you do in these teachings allow us to see, right? So a little bit now, What to what extent do you share these practices with others? Um, do you wait for the invitation to arise? And if so, what, what do you usually find? Is it all, uh, again, customized or are there kind of like, oh, geez, this person, if only they would know this particular practice, that would be of great benefit. So I'm curious how you work with now, distributing this wisdom that you have within you to those that you're working with.
1: Through a death doula training.
0: So mm-hmm.
1: we have a 12-week course, and we have lots of guide, guided meditations um, by myself and others uh, with very different perspectives. But as we've talked about today, a lot of very general kind of um, guideposts. And the practices are uh, very much Self-care for caregivers. This is a big one. Um, you know, our society, as we know, doesn't necessarily support us in death. You know, where we're even in end-of-life care, I find that everyone wants to own death. The hospital, the senior home, but no one wants to actually hold the space for it. You know, so elders often end up in emergencies going from the senior home to the hospital and people are having their experience in the hospital, you know, their death experience.
0: Um, so, yeah, I was just allowing you the space to see if something yes. else but say, can, so, so, like, a little bit more. Tell us a little bit more about the 12 week course because, so, whoa, I mean, this sounds yes. so
1: We have, um, you know, I, I tend to allow the Tibetan masters to first guide these practices. And then I feel like more of a support. So we have some of our own meditations, but I, I direct people to like Roshi Joan yourself. Um, Tracy Stanley is offering some self-care practices and yoga nidra. Uh, but I find that, um, It's For people who practice, it's really good for you to make the practice in some ways. I don't want to say your own because it's not about being individualistic. I do believe in lineages, but I find that people often need to make make the practice uh, more their own, meaning listen to five or six different practice deaths. And I have many clients that I've worked with at end of life where I've said, let's create your own. Open up GarageBand and create your own meditation, especially for people who feel really out of control, Beautiful, you know, where they they're trying to control something. And so, also in the in the look, course, we I, a very big reason for me creating a death doula course is to focus on aging as much as we're focusing on on death and dying in the work of a doula. And so a doula is a non-medical support for the dying, but yet we work with hospice and medical teams. And so this is a course for practitioners who want to dive in for themselves. Uh, Like we have a mutual friend who'll be in the course, our friend Bruce, and he'll be in his 80s. He's going to be contemplating, what does it look like for him at eighty you know, and he'll have a supportive network and uh, to ask questions and to to really even maybe help him, guide him in some way. And others are really in the course to serve, hmm. to serve others and to find their place and how to have these conversations in their practice as a therapist, as a coach, uh, as a yoga teacher. So we have a, a variety of people that are, That students coming into the course with little to no experience and some students who have been a social worker or a therapist for 40, 50 years. And we'll have at least 100 people in small groups. So everyone gets to work in their own little cohort for 12 weeks. And we align them based on their intentions, their reasons, their why for learning more about death and becoming a death doula. And we're focused on elder care management. That's the part, that's the gap I see in most education on end of life. We focus on that final end, but there's this accepting aging, how we choose to live, especially in community. How do we prevent our own isolation? You know, I don't know one person who's ever said, I can't wait to go into a nursing home right you no know, oh, I can't wait for that and so <laughs> this is um really our opportunity I think this is the generation that we have to come up with better solutions we're watching what our parents and grandparents are doing and we're waking up to okay what does it look like if we're all going to end up in a co-living environment if it's sooner starting this sooner than later whether it's with a small group of friends or creating completely new models, right? new models where, especially in Tibetan Buddhism, I actually see this with a lot of sanghas where the elders will have a little casitas, little houses close within walking uh, so that their Dharma, their practice and the stupa or the gompa can be a part of their aging and end of life process. We need more of that, more of these conversations of, you know, whether it's with your best friends, the kind of like golden girls, but um, you know, with a very different lens and perspective unique for for families.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic and, and I think uh, you would certainly agree, and this is worth saying. First of all, we're going to put a link to this course, which I 100% endorse um, so people can tune into it if they're interested, but I think what's helpful you you suggested this a little bit earlier when you were talking about introducing to transitions and the small deaths that people may have had during their lives to prepare for the big death that that one of the monumental gifts of these teachings is that what i playfully refer to as this kind of stealth help quality that whenever you talk about birth whenever you talk about death you're really you're talking about birth they co-define each other and And when you're really exploring this, you're exploring the the death principle, the bardo principle. And so, a sense of becoming sensitized to these teachings, yes, of course, they're targeted towards the end of life. But as you know, as mentioned in Sagar Rinpoche's book, the Tibetan book of living and dying, these teachings upon close reading apply to every moment of life, right? Any transition, any loss, anything that the small deaths that happen all the time. And so, to me, Studying this stuff quite deeply for decades, this has been an ongoing, consists like a fractal, right? The deeper you look, the more applicability you see. And so, yes, it has application towards the grand opening at the end of life. But how about all the miniature deaths that take place moment to moment to moment? To me, that's the ongoing, breathless, breathtaking insights of these teachings. I'm sure you've discovered this for yourself.
1: Yes. And you just brought up a very foundation of practice to me is breathwork. And, you know, if you're sitting on your cushion, even if, um, you know, we don't, I, I haven't come across this with any teachers in Tibetan Buddhism, um, traditional teachers, that just that importance of how to sit and really how to bring the breath into, into the lungs in a way that relaxes the chest and relaxes the nervous system. Uh, but there's a practice of, it's so simple. Again, it's like Tonglen. The simplicity is the magic. And it's um, just breath retention. Wow. Holding the breath, especially at the base of the exhale, and extending that space between each breath, this to me has been one of the most effective practices. Because in that space between the inhale, between you know your exhale, you learn a lot about your mind. You learn a lot about, you know, which, is it the end breath or the exhale that you can be more spacious? Just that will tell you quite a bit about your relationship with letting go, surrendering, and that can differ day to day. Um, But getting that breath retention to a minute, 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, you really start to get to know how your nervous system and your mind connect. So this to me, that's how I start my practice. I do breath work first. I set the foundation, Uh, usually physical movement. This is something I find into, as I've gotten deep into Tibetan Buddhism, I can get stuck on the cushion and realize, okay, a little bit of movement makes the cushion a much more transcendent experience. When I, when the winds are moving through the body. It's it's fantastic.
0: And also what you're you're suggesting is yet another iteration of the Bardo principle. It's just that gap between Mm -hmm. exhalation and inhalation. And and in that moment, when you breathe out, hold, actually hold that exhalation and just notice what happens to your mind. Because what's what's the last thing we're going to do in this life? I mean, we're going to exhale and we're not going to inhale and that's it. And, In my experience, one of the most powerful moments in life is when you're with someone and they take that last breath. They just breathe out and there's just this thunderous silence when you realize the life force, again, has been returned to its primordial lender. And so the fact that you actually do this kind of breathtaking work is really quite beautiful because that's what brings us into this life. And that's the last thing we're going to do as we exhale and expire at the end of life. So, I mean, what a wonderful insight. I wanted to ask you... um, also, Sarah, with your permission, what is what is your um, relationship to plant medicines um, in terms of preparation for the end of life, both for the person who's making the transition and potentially for, for caregivers? Because as you know, Stan Goff has worked with us for literally 50 years, Roland Griffiths, uh, Anthony Bostas. There's so many amazing people doing amazing work about these entheogens, these psychedelics and in their incredible role at the end of life. So speak to us a little bit about both your personal experience, if you're comfortable with that, and also if that is if, if part of your toolkit. Is that part of your actual um, curriculum?
1: Yes, actually, we do have uh, the Women's Vis- Visionary Council on board uh, to, as part of the death doula course, They'll be coming in to talk about 50-plus years of experience in psychedelics and plant medicines for grief and tending to loss and end of life. Now, personally, uh, I've had many families come to me, dozens of families, who have recreational LSD, psilocybin, um, uh, cannabis, you know, and they're looking to facilitate on their own meaning they can't find anyone they, they you know they say i think this could be helpful this helps me or and then they kind of go in wanting to give a dose of something to their parent and i'm so grateful we have so much more research you know we have maps and we have the beckley foundation who are really understanding set and setting their understanding and taking some of these molecules and putting them into a form where people don't experience nausea or some of the physical. Recently, I've worked with I've worked with someone for four years. Um, met her at eighty; she's eighty four now, and she has had dozens of treatments um, for ovarian cancer in these four years, and she's been really afraid to die, but the pain has grown so great that she's ready and she's really wanted to face this fear and i connected her with a mobile hospice center in santa fe not knowing that they offered assisted ketamine journeys Beautiful. Beautiful. she had one journey and what the, the doctor came to speak with her about medical assistance and to book her her death and she said um he offered her. Well, we have several different journeys. She said yes right away to her family's surprise, and she wrote beautifully about it to me the next day. She was completely open and ready. She said, and she went <clears throat> through a practice death, so the experience was headphones, um, intermuscular, and she went to a place of shedding her skin, um, really going through the bardo's and releasing completely dissolving and it was beautiful and now she is um preparing what i this is something i love about medical assistance and death more than 60 percent of patients who receive the medicine to end their life choose not to, to take it it's the safety and having it that that is everything so this particular elder in santa fe is now reserving her medical assistance in death. And she's very resolved. And she said, Wow, now that I've let go of this much and I know how to let go, I'm actually really looking forward to it. Whether it's with the assistance or on her own. So I'm a I am a big supporter and I find that um, if you if someone's facing a terminal diagnosis, that's overwhelming enough i i putting psychedelics or some type of um intense experience is something to be done with extreme care and compassion and guidance you know we have a lot of institutions that are offering teachings and trainings and there are also trainings with indigenous and we can never forget where these medicines come from And really respect the practices and the people in those traditions and their safety in bringing it to people. That it's um, these different uh, experiences, ayahuasca, San Pedro, peyote, these are medicines that connect us with spirit. And personally, uh, these are part of my practice.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Being able to die before we die and having these plant medicines that teach us. When we're healthy and young and we're not dealing with the stress of a terminal diagnosis, to me, they've been helpful and actively practicing dying awake. Um, And they can be uncomfortable. These kinds of experiences can uh, bring our trauma to the surface, things in this life that are unresolved. And these things are the same things that come up on our deathbed. So if we can resolve these things before we get to our deathbed, um, wonderful. you know, you have more space for joy and um, you know it's really opening up and embracing fear. These medicines can often bring up our fear. and this is again why uh, just like Tibetan Buddhism, know your teacher, know your facilitator um, going into these kinds of plant medicine experiences, you want to do with people that you love and that love you. Uh, I supported a friend for a year in ayahuasca uh, and never, never drink that year. I felt like I spent. Um, well, I, I will tell you, my my first uh, plant medicine was with uh, Lakota Sioux in my early twenties, peyote, and I waited twenty years to open up again into plant medicines. And I wanted to uh, really connect with indigenous and people who who made the medicine, the ayahuasca. And I, you know, got to know the teacher for two years, and really understood the practice before just just going in. And you know, and a lot of these, you need to cleanse your body so that your mind can really be free to connect with your heart and expand in
0: the in the in the practices. Oh, my gosh, there's so much here. I, I wanted to just pepper two things out. One is, you talked about um, anger earlier, and now you're bringing up fear. I think you probably agree with me that these are perhaps two of the most common, um, so called untoward emotions that are expressed around the end of life. And and I, I I took a pretty deep hard look at this. And I think and I'm curious how this lands with you, is that when I look at it into my own experience, Fear and anger are two of the most reifying, solidifying emotions we have. And I mean, really, fear, what does fear do? Fear reifies the future. Anger reifies the past. And when everything is falling apart and you're trying to get it together, these are almost primordial level defense mechanisms. Fear is actually the primordial affective emotion of samsara. And so when you're going to these primordial bases, these expressions can come out. And as you, as a caretaker, it's really helpful. Again, there's the understanding that we can bring to these experiences. This person is not unloading on you. They're unloading on you because their world is falling apart and in an attempt to get it together. They're reifying. And one way to reify, I think, will feel into fear and anger. Those are solid mofos, right? And hence, mm-hmm. they come up at the moment of death. So the second, yes. this, this is so great. I, I love I love what you say about these are part of my practice, I mean, uh, these entheogens, because uh, confession, two years ago before I had my diagnosis of cancer, I wouldn't go near any of this stuff. I was I was a traditional kind of ultra-purist guy, you know, uh, chemical mysticism is a cheap, dirty trick, not for me, but as, as these um, terminal conditions, and by the way, tongue-in-cheek, you know, Deepak Chopra once said, life itself is a sexually transmitted terminal disease, so we have a terminal diagnosis the minute we come into this world, right?
1: So I think a little yes.
0: little gallows humor can, can <laughs> play, but I have completely changed my tune around these agents because, in certain sense, I was forced to look at certain things, and all of a sudden, this vast skill set became available to me. So I'm curious, uh, Sierra, and I want to be respectful of your time as well. I, I do have one last thing to ask you, but mm-hmm. uh, do you feel comfortable enough making suggestions about? using these agents as a practice um individually and then i guess its corollary question would be if there was one agent that you would recommend for someone who's um facing the end of life with a lot of anger and fear what might that be
1: well the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, all of these plant medicines are be, are meant to be used in community so, you know, I, I love Jack Saul's work, uh, collective trauma, collective healing. We need to come together in one place often to to complete a lot of cycles of healing. And um, there's not one substance, you know, not one molecule, not one that really is that silver bullet. I feel like it's what uh, and who, it's more who, it's the relationship. That you have with the community that's either growing this, cultivating it, or with the facilitator. But it's um it's in your community, you know, or it's um something that it's not something you just learn about on, for a weekend workshop. You no, know, it's something that you want to ask questions and and even talk to your doctor because you wanna be sure if um, you know, I've I've have worked with many patients who have Tried MDMA assisted therapy and MDMA more talk therapy, and this can lift the heart rates. It can um, have physical. It can cause some physical discomfort, but there's nothing like the relationship that you have with who's facilitating. You know, so for me, music is very important, and for others, for certain plant medicines, no music, complete silence. Uh, so it's a big part of what helps you feel comfortable and understanding that you're going beyond your comfort zone, right? You're, you're going beyond and, uh, but you don't want to go too far, right? And and this, I think keeps a lot of people from wanting to, to try an experience like this with plant medicine. Um, uh, they hear stories of what if I take too much or what if I don't come back? Um, what if I get stuck in in some trauma? Now, this is where when I say it's part of my practice, the teachings for me, especially from Tibetan Buddhism, the visualizations, they become far brighter. And it's my practice that really starts to support me mm-hmm. in the in the moments that can be really challenging in plant medicine, the moments where you feel old pain, you feel maybe other people's pain you feel ancestral pain um but i would say that's one of the greatest gifts plant medicines brought to me is really connecting with our ancestors our purpose and as someone who's a natural caregiver this that practice has helped me kind of preserve my own energy and see that i'm I'm there to support not fix that's a big one and um and it's not an easy conversation with a lot of lamas, Tibetan lamas, you know, of um, this acceptance. So this is also why I waited so many years, because I, I felt my mind is delicate. That's something that, that the, you know, we, we build our mind to be strong like a diamond, but I felt I needed my my practice to be strong and my my foundation to be steady. Going into any kind of plant medicine experience, but it's where it's in the in your community, you know, you that you'll find the right person and maybe even the right sangha to have that experience. And always remember, it's not to be done alone. This culture of microdosing—I think we've gone a little crazy with this overall. Uh, I feel these experiences are for even ceremony. That there's a beginning, middle, and end to that psychedelic experience.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really well said and wonderfully said. So last question I mean there's so much more I could ask you but mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, the the sometimes the rub with uh, uh, contemporary and traditional um, ways of looking at things. I mean as you know in the Tibetan tradition um things like taking one's life are cons- are frowned upon, right? Because Karma has to run its own course and and it can be considered a type of suicide. And then you you mentioned merit, which is a form of karma. This is a massive demeritorious enterprise. It can create a lot of negative karma. Um, but I'm curious, your view on medical aid in dying, um, how you reconcile that with some of the traditional admonitions about engaging in that type of, of uh, euthanasia?
1: So personally, I... I really would hope and pray that my practice could carry me into voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. If I ever had a terminal diagnosis and was on that path, that is really I mean, just put yourself in that place, terminal diagnosis and, you know, knowing that your body's going to be suffering um, and feeling that suffering growing every day. I know I can't say that. Ah, that I could absolutely not choose medical assistance in death. You know, um, I'll tell you what some of my teachers have said to me, that um, as a practitioner, my role is not to support people in the decision of medical assistance in death, but to support them in the process of easing their suffering on whatever choices they make. That's the path. And I respect people's choice, whatever that choice is. And if it's medical assistance, uh, we know, like I said earlier, 60% of people who are accepted into medical assistance receive the medicine, choose not to take it. Mm. So, going on that journey with someone who chooses it, you never know if they're really going to stick with it or not. You know, they, you may be with them uh, through the whole journey without medical assistance. But that's how I support. I let them choose, and I really stay out of, of the way. on mm-hmm. <laughs> that one, you know, that's um, so deeply personal. And uh, we have medical assistance in 13-plus states in the U.S. Uh, and growing. And it's um, it's one of these, you know, it gets political, and people are lobbying for and against it. But it's it's something that we don't know until we're really in the decision-making seat.
0: Yeah, it's like so many topics around this uh, business, so to speak, they're, they're they're really difficult. I I remember, very clearly, when I was doing research for my book, you know, I I asked all these lamas, I interviewed all these amazing teachers, and I learned so much. But I had one particular encounter actually with a female Acharya um, senior teacher that really helped me we're talking exactly on these topics. And and she said, you know, as noble as these traditions are, my suggestion to you, Andrew, is you learn as much as you possibly can, understand the karmic implications, understand the role of causality, and then empower yourself to make the appropriate decisions. Um, because mm-hmm. you know, I think I think that's what's so beautiful in this day and age is that yes, we can pay homage to this extraordinary lineage, the power of these teachings. But I think you know one near enemy of the of tradition is ossification. You know these some of these things come down and they get solidified, they get ossified, reified. And I, I don't think that's particularly helpful in this day and age, you know. Um, so the delicate the dance between surrendering, acquiescing to these amazing teachings, um, and yet, um, I'm not saying editing, but adapting them, you know, because adaptation is the core of evolution, right? If we don't adapt, these teachings, they're going to go extinct. They're not going to really apply. And so this mm-hmm. is part of this cultural translation thing. You know, How do we keep these? That is a
1: great points? point. That is a beautiful point. You're exactly right. These um Traditions are really a technology for us to employ. You know, I see them more as a technology than a philosophy.
0: Beautiful. Wow. That's spot on. Well, Sarah, this has been so rich. In closing, just a couple of questions. There's, you know, you're so well-versed in this arena. There's so much literature there. So these are two kind of, one great thing about death is it brings everything to a point. Um, Everything is so concentrated like a singularity. If there was a book or two, what are the one or two most influential books that you have studied, read in this arena that you might recommend we explore?
1: Being with Dying, Roshi Joan. Um, your book, of course, I'm Preparing to Die. Um, and Pema Chodron's, okay. How We Live is How We Die. And then for really serious Buddhists, my background has been more from Pabanka Rinpoche, yep. Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand. And it it is sort of um, an updated more to the Times uh, take on Buddhism. It's a twenty eight day discourse, a very very thick book. Um, my friend and teacher Jam Young, told me to read it and call and come back in seven years wow. if I were, if I really wanted to, you know, take more teachings. And so, um, and of course, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. That's a wonderful book. It's it so applicable to people of different faiths.
0: I totally agree. Even though Rinpoche got himself into a little trouble at the end, do we categorically dismiss some of his insights? I don't think so. I think people are messy, sticky beings and there's dimensions that we all have that are quite noble and others that are ignoble. And so I'm like you, I still take refuge in his book. I still recommend it. And I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, And so along the lines any any question that I didn't ask? Um, Anything I should have asked? Anything you want to share? Kind of final last words? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> last will and testament
1: uh, i think closing words are um, have these conversations that as you often say andrew uh, i think you call it a spiritual will or you have um what is it that you call it is it a spiritual will
0: dharma will literally a dharma, a dharma
1: will, will. Yep. yes and start to create these groups in your life with your friends we get stuck on thinking we have to do all these things with our family or that we have to do all of so much with our partner, you know, and um, we've put a lot of pressure, especially in uh, marriages and relationship when it comes to end of life and care. And so this sense of obligation, this sense of one person assuming, making assumptions, you know, this, these conversations can uh, take out the assumptions and bring a lot of clarity. But uh, I'm looking forward to having you as part of our elder and end of life doula training and to dive a little deeper on the practices for dreaming and preparing for death and dying really dying before we die ever we're really people are hungry for a roadmap and to me the best roadmap has been the bardos and making this digestible so people can assimilate it i'm looking forward to sharing that with you
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, the the, the Barter teachings are arguably without peer in the world's literature. I mean, it's what they explore, what they have to impact. The single greatest, most impactful set of teachings I've ever explored in my life. I mean, like, no doubt, right? Sierra, this has been such a delight. Thank you so much. Every time I spend time with you, I learn so much. And your wisdom, your knowledge, your, your ability to join heaven and earth, these incredible lofty teachings with real practicality and earth level embodied in the elegance of your being. It's so uplifting to me and it's such an inspiration to spend time with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us.
1: My pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you, Andrew.
0: All next time. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us and a big thanks, of course, to Sierra for sharing her wisdom and practicality with us. We hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. So please spread the word, rate the podcast, review it, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into this community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts.